Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Albert Gergan. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Albert Gerganis about his account of the life of the German journalist and politician Kurt Eisner, entitled Kurt Eisner, A Modern Life. Al, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mark, and thanks to New Books Network. Oh, it's our pleasure. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, I am Professor Emeritus of Modern Languages at the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina. Um, I currently reside in my hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, What was it that led you to write a biography of Kurt Eisner? Uh, In 1976-77, I was studying modern European history for a master's degree at the University of Chicago, and I was reading propaganda pertaining to the Hottentot elections of 1907. And I read some pieces by Kurt Eisner that captivated me. And uh, after that, I tried to read everything by Eisner I could lay my hands on. So uh, eventually I gravitated back to literature um, at the University of North Carolina, And I continued um, to be interested in Eisner and projected uh, a master's thesis there on uh, his didactic fiction and then um, continued that uh, for my doctorate. As you described uh, just there, he really did have quite a range of uh, writing, uh, journalism, uh, plays, and so forth. Uh, And yet I was surprised to find that there wasn't really a, uh, a major biography of him until you sat down to write one. What, what was it that, that led you to undertake such a formidable task? And what were some of the challenges involved? Uh, there, there have been several works in Germany. Um, there is one work from uh, 1965 by the American Alan Mitchell, um, where uh, Eisner's period of government was uh, treated and I thought this really is a, a fascinating figure who who merits uh, a proper life. And yet, uh, it, it's interesting to, uh, as you detail in the book what you had to go through to get to it, how the, the degree to which the papers uh, really haven't become uh, available in quantity until within just the past couple of decades. Exactly. Um, the uh, initially. Um, there was virtually no access for Western scholars to the Institute for Marxism-Leninism in Berlin. Uh, and then uh, at, the, uh, at the fall of the wall in Berlin, um, for the first time, we, we did have access. And I was one of the first 40 um, folks who were uh, allowed in. And uh, I, was, I was stunned at the, at the richness of that collection. Um, Eisner's personal papers, his manuscripts, and began working on it uh, then at the old IML, Institute for Marxism-Leninism. That collection was eventually uh, subsumed into the the Bundesarchiv in Berlin, and uh, I made uh, a number of trips there um, to um, to sort through those papers over a period of years. Um, then uh, in in Munich, there is also a, a repository of Eisner's government papers. And then there were um, uh, papers of his correspondence in, um, in at Koblenz, at the, at the Bundesarchiv, and also um, at, the, um, at the archive in Amsterdam. Um, so, yeah, it, it, uh, there um, in Berlin, Koblenz, uh, Munich, Amsterdam, New York, Leo Baek Institute. Um, the, his papers have, uh, have become fairly far flung. Um, so uh, 
that necessitated some um, some grants, some travel, and uh, a lot of um, a lot of work uh, reading until your eyes bleed. <laughs> I, I think that there are uh, quite a few people who could uh, relate to that experience. <laughs> uh, could you? I wonder if you could start us off in terms of talking about Eisner as to talk a bit about his background, because as you explain in the book, he has this this background, which given uh, what he eventually uh, becomes and the politics he adopts is, is a little surprising. Uh, yes, it is. He, um, you know, I think of him uh, at in 1918, when he leads the Bavarian Revolution and establishes the, uh, the Republic, um, you know, as a pariah come to power. Um, he, uh, he was the son of a Jewish immigre from uh, Bohemia to Berlin. Um, uh, his father, Emanuel Eisner, um, uh, through uh, much diligence, hard work, uh, became a purveyor to the court in military regalia. Um, the, this was, a, uh, this was a, a Jewish family, bourgeois family, um, with close ties to the court. Um, Eisner received a, an elite education at um, the Askanisches Gymnasium in Berlin, one of the elite preparatory schools, and then uh, you know, had the uh, opportunity to, um, to attend Berlin University. Um, he was uh, in preparation for an academic career, um, Good, solid uh, bourgeois background, and uh, and then he began to um, to shift from the study of literature to the study of philosophy, and it was that study that led him um, to Kant, um, and he uh, he spent um, uh, several years of his life really poring over Kant, um, continuing that study. Um, Eventually in Marburg under Hermann Cohen, um, the really one of the the, the key figures in the neo-Kantian school, and uh, so Eisner was not a traditional orthodox Marxist. His thinking was very much tinged by Kantian ethics. I was thinking about the uh, intellectual journey that you described, and I was and, and it uh, brings to mind. Uh, also, he, in terms of his uh, academic uh, development, how many of his friends later in life, uh, even after he embraces this uh, career as a journalist and uh, as a uh, and as, a, as later on as a politician, they, they still saw him very much as an academic. And they had talked. You, you mentioned how when he's arrested uh, for the first time, he's described as a part-time lecturer. And as a doctor, and yet, as you explain, he never actually takes that degree. Why doesn't he? Uh, the this has to do with his um, his split from his parents. Um, he uh, at university um, uh, fell in love with the daughter of a uh, a painter, um, Elizabeth Hendrich. Um, she was um, she was uh, from a Protestant home. Um, he was determined to wed her, and this led to a, a, a rupture in his relationship with his parents for several years. Um, and uh, he, uh, at the time he determined to wed Elizabeth Hendrich, he um, decided he had to go his own way. And for that reason, um, withdrew from university after having worked for a long time on a dissertation on the, um, the romantic Achim von Arnim, um, and uh, went to work for the Herald News Agency. Um, this was his uh, his gateway into journalism. Um, he then uh, he worked at the Frankfurter Zeitung uh, in Frankfurt am Main, and then um, uh, then was at uh, Marburg uh, for the General Anzeiger, which became the Hessische uh, Landeszeitung. Um, and it was here that he um, he really made the acquaintance of, of Hermann Cohen and uh, those men associated with Cohen um, you know, at Marburg. I was wondering if you could uh, perhaps give us a bit of background here and explain a bit about uh, you know the sort of newspapers he was working for, uh, you know the, the nature of journalism at that time, and the sort of journalism that Eisner himself engaged in. Well, when he when he began at the Herald News Agency, uh, he um, he uh, had he was 
collecting news for this um, for this syndicated agency, uh, and had the had the honor of being one of the very few journalists who accompanied Bismarck uh, after his resignation back to his home. Um, Eisner uh, sat in the train compartment with Bismarck, interviewed him, um, you know, wrote that up, and then saw it uh, changed to purpose by by various newspapers and started really to understand, um, I think, how uh, how journalism functioned at the time. Um, the he. Uh, he began to realize that uh, newspapers were conglomerates that represented um, business interests in, in, in many cases. That was certainly the case at the Frankfurter Zeitung, which was a, a liberal democratic paper. Um, he, uh, at this time, that did fit his politics. Uh, but he initially at Frankfurt, he was doing things like copy reading um, advertisements for uh, cigar shops and the like. Uh, the, uh, at the same time he was working for the paper in Frankfurt, he was also uh, pursuing his own, um, his own freelance career. He had become uh, extremely interested in, in philosophy and was really the, the, first, um, the first person to present a, a comprehensive scholarly study of Nietzsche. Um, this was his book, um, Psychopathia Spiritualis, um, which was uh, uh, was published initially uh, in serial form in the the journal um, Gesellschaft, and uh, and then uh, printed as a book um, shortly thereafter, and uh, really um, in in many ways set his course. Um, he was uh, at that point, I think, still interested in a in an academic career. Um, but once he, uh, you know, once he uh, left Frankfurt and, and went to Marburg, and began formal study um, under uh, Hermann Cohen, um, he, um, I think that he was increasingly aware of the political divides uh, in Germany. Um, uh, the the Neo Kantians are associated with uh, evolutionary socialism. Um, and that is certainly where uh, I believe Eisner was tending um, at, at that point in his career, right up until his arrest. He was not affiliated formally with the German Social Democratic Party while he was working in Marburg, although he, he had a, uh, a good relationship with uh, Philip Scheidemann, um, who became then during um, the First World War and uh, Weimar Republic a, a linchpin socialist. Um, social Democrat, majority social Democrat. Uh, and uh, Eisner was, uh, was recruited by Scheidemann to, um, to join the party, but uh, resisted. And then um, it came his arrest for um, uh, uh, Les Majesté, um, um, where he, um, he, in an anonymous article, uh, Wrote uh, a piece that was offensive to the the Kaiser. He was um, he was ferreted out, um, arrested, and uh, and then served a a nine month prison term for um, for that offense. That imprisonment helps to illustrate the environment in which he worked, and you do a, a great job in the book of explaining that environment about how the this is not a free press as we would understand it in the 21st century. This is one in which they're being constantly monitored by the police. Uh, you, as you're describing, you have the problem of less majest, uh, but you also have political considerations. And this is a time when the Social Democratic Party is not a uh, organization that has a uh, dominant presence in, 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 in German politics. They are a party that often faces a degree of, 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 uh, of uh, arrest and, and, and monitoring by the police. And, and, and yet it was in this environment that Eisner really uh, developed, uh, gets his political feet, his journalistic feet wet, his political feet wet, and becomes uh, not just a public intellectual, but a uh, journalistic activist, as, as uh, you, you describe in these articles where he's not just reporting news, but he's seeking to uh, tr try to influence opinion uh, towards uh, what becomes the, the Social Democrats. Yes, the um, thank you for your compliment, by the way. The um, the the, the Social Democrats uh, under Bismarck 
um, were uh, indeed outlawed and exiled. They continued to function as a party, um, for the most part, out of Switzerland. They had, uh, they had an illegal newspaper that was smuggled into Germany. And uh, when, when Eisner um, really uh, finishes his, his schooling and, uh, and, and begins to write, um, the Social Democrats are, are, are feeling their way back into, um, into the, the political mainstream. Um, the uh, Eisner um, at Marburg uh, participated in uh, political campaigns against the, um, anti, uh, the anti-Semitic party. Um, and I think that this is really his, um, his entree into political activism, um, going out, uh, campaigning with, um, uh, one of his colleagues who was challenging, uh, a prominent, uh, uh anti-Semite. And, uh, this is why, uh, Philip Scheidemann and Wilhelm Liebknecht, who at the time was, um, editor of Vorwärts, the social democratic party organ, um, in Berlin, why they, um, became attracted to Eisner and tried to recruit him. Um, the, uh, after, um, and the, the, the writing for which he went to jail was for, um, a, a Berlin journal called Die Kritik. Um, and so he, he tried to keep that, uh, a bit separate from his, his career track, but it did catch up with him. And, uh, it turned out that it became uh, a major impetus to his um, his shift in career uh, when he um, when he left uh, jail and was recruited uh, directly by Wilhelm Liebknecht, who who came to Marburg to speak with him. Um, Eisner then joined the Social Democratic Party and became uh, Liebknecht's uh, right hand man at, at Vorwärts and the heir apparent. Um, and that is uh, that's a remarkable turn of events. Uh, Philip Scheidemann was uh, immensely surprised because up until that point, uh, Scheidemann remarked that Eisner had um, no interest in class struggle. As Scheidemann is changing, he brings in Eisner, who himself is is also evolving as a figure. And you, but you also describe that in addition to him uh, rising up in terms of the leadership of the uh, of Forvets, uh, he also is in very well compensated for his journalism more generally, which I, I read as, as something that, that spoke to the the quality of his work and, and the esteem of it. Was was that a, a, a an accurate reading? That is very accurate. Um, he uh, he was well paid for what he did, and eventually, um, you know, when he was uh, when he was working even under. Um, as, a, as an associate editor at uh, Münchner Post, um, later in his career, uh, he, uh, he was receiving more compensation than, uh, say, Karl Kautsky, who was editor of Neue Zeit in Berlin, um, the, the theoretical publication of the Social Democratic Party. And so if you, if you look at um, Eisner's uh, demand uh, as a, a political commentator, as a as a literary critic, as a, as a drama critic, um, he never went without work. And uh, whether he was writing for um, bourgeois papers, um, socialist papers, uh, journals, um, he always did um, well enough that he could support his family um, quite well. And as you describe, his his family was uh, a, a fairly substantial one. He's uh, he, he and his wife have uh, a few several children. He mm-hmm. is also uh, supporting his uh, parents to a degree. It, it really gives you a sense as to just how successful he is, even though his uh, politics are uh, in many ways still seen by most Germans as outside the mainstream. You know, Alan Mitchell in his study. Um, of, of Eisner's government talks about Eisner's early career and says that um, had he not been uh, had he not been writing for um, the political press, he might well have earned his living as a cabaret writer because he was uh, he was quite witty. He could be coruscating um, in the in the same manner as um, uh, Kurt Tucholsky. How. Uh does he eventually become the editor of Vorwärts? And, and uh, what does he do for that newspaper during his time as editor? Uh, 
under Liebknecht, under Wilhelm Liebknecht, um, who was um, who was aged at this point, Eisner was serving as um, a, the really the the managing editor um, under an editor in chief, and Liebknecht uh, had that status because of his. Um, because of his history in the founding of the party, his close association with um, with with Babel, um, the the chairman of the party, and uh, Liebknecht um, could do virtually anything he liked um, in that position as editor in chief. Eisner, as his um, as his managing editor, his assistant. Uh, once um, Liebknecht died suddenly, um, and Eisner advanced to um, the the position of um, chief editor, but not editor in chief, um, he uh, he was more limited. Um, and at the at that exact time, there was um, you know there was the beginning of the, the schism in German social democracy where you had. Uh, a radical left wing. You had a, a mainstream, and then you had um, the uh, the reformists, who were the right wing of the the Social Democratic Party. Eisner um, was presiding at that uh, at that point over um, over an editorial staff that was fairly equally balanced between the um, the left wing, the right wing. Eisner tried to maintain a centrist position. Um, and to uh, to to balance out the the discord, and that eventually became um, you know the reason for his downfall as as editor in chief, because he would not uh, he would not throw his uh, his influence to one side or the other, believing that uh, as you know as the 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 head editor of the, the Social Democratic Party organ, it fell to him to be um, unbiased and to allow. Um, a free exchange of opinion uh, in the pages of that organ. Was his position a factor in why Forvert's was so successful during his tenure as editor? Or, and what were some of the other reasons why uh, it, it, uh, he was regarded so well by his peers? Absolutely. He, um, he immensely improved the style of the journal. Um, subscriptions uh, increased substantially, um, almost doubling um, during his, uh, his uh, first few years. Uh, so when he was uh, when he was being criticized, he could always point to, well, we're we're selling more papers than we have. We're um, we're bringing in a, a left liberal audience. Um, folks are reading our uh, our newspaper um, precisely because of uh, the the theater reviews, um, which was almost unheard of in in a social democratic um, paper at the time. Um, the one of the one of the controversies aesthetically um, at that time was that of naturalism, and uh, what role naturalism um, as a as a literary movement um, played in uh, in the life of a political party, and uh, quite a bit of debate in in the German Social Democratic Party about uh, about uh, was there uh, a socialist art, and Eisner was um, was a leading figure in that. You also had the um, the Volksbühne movement, the Free Stage movement. Eisner was um, uh, a charter member of the Free Stage in Berlin. Um, he advocated performances of uh, uh, of Ibsen, uh, eventually of Strindberg, and uh, actually um, was able to shape the the German theater movement um, to a great to a great degree because of that. Um, so he. Um, Yes, his his sense of style uh, elevated um, the quality of of Vorwärts, um, and of course uh, he was criticized by some elements uh, in the party for um, his uh, his aestheticism, um, uh, which conflicted with um, what they considered to be scientific socialism. What you described is the intellectual range of. Eisner's uh, writings and his engagement, but 
as you mentioned uh, earlier, it, he was also uh, in, engaged with the practical politics of Wilhelmine Germany. He's uh, he's he's writing about the issues of his day. He is uh, writing about uh, he he's providing uh, electioneering for the 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 elections that are taking place. Uh, what what positions is he taking there, and, and and to what degree, and in what ways is he helping the Social Democratic Party in the early twentieth century? Um, as um, as editor of Forbes, uh, it fell to Eisner to um, to attend and to comment on the annual party congress. And as these debates raged uh, between the the left of the party and um, the radicals and the and the reformists on the on the right, um, Eisner um, commented on um, on the debate. He tried to inform that debate, and he then presented on the front page of uh, the, the the party organ um, every day of the party congress and for um, some weeks afterward uh, a, an editorial on uh, the um, the upshot of those debates. Um, so he, um, in in this case, he he was really defending the party against its critics. Um, uh, in uh, the conservative segment, um, in the um, in the bourgeois liberal segment, um, but also trying to to keep the party from splintering, which it eventually did. Uh, and this is, of course, the the subject of, of Karl Schorsky's book, The Great Schism. And Eisner was um, was in large part caught up in that. Um, but uh, you know, as um, as editor of the uh, the, the the party organ, which Lenin considered to be um, the the great party organ of the great socialist party uh, of Europe at that time, um, you know, Eisner's job was to, um, as he viewed it, was to um, maintain the party structure to prevent the fragmentation into um, into divisions that um, uh, that ultimately he could not prevent. So it sounds like, you know, given what you've described, that he was perhaps disappointed by the event, by the fact that he couldn't prevent it and, and, and that he was eventually deprived of his editorship. What did he do uh, after he left Forverts? Uh, well, he he was caught up really in, in, a, in a purge um, at, at Forverts where um, the party radicals increasingly gained strength. And when I say party radicals, I'm talking here, um, this is Rosa Luxemburg. This is, um, she is assisted here by um, Franz Mehring um, and by Karl Kautsky. They, um, they had Babel's ear. Um, Babel was concerned that um, uh, the, the revisionists, the reformists, um, who, whose leader was Edward Bernstein, uh, were gaining too much power in the party. They moved to check that. Um, they attempted to realign the balance of uh, the editorial staff of Forverts. Um, uh, some editors were dismissed. Some were reassigned. Um, Eisner, um, in protest, uh, tendered his resignation, um, and uh, it was accepted. And this was in um, – he had been there since uh, 1898. Um, he um, – he left Forverts in 1905, and for um, a year or so, uh, there was a period in the wilderness where he was uh, a freelance writer. Um, he began writing for Heinrich Brown's journal, um, Neue Gesellschaft, uh, New Society, and uh, he cast about to uh, recreate himself um, and to uh, really to um, – Reconsolidate alliances um, that he might uh, that he might uh, eventually return to um, uh, an editorship, um, which he did in Nuremberg at the Frankische Tagespost, the Franconian um, daily uh, party organ there of um, Nuremberg in um, uh, in uh, North Bavaria, um, and but this was a time um, where. Uh, I think Eisner really began to realize uh, who his true friends were. 
and uh, that was uh, in in many respects beneficial. Um, he was uh, he was uh, targeted by um, Josef Bloch, uh, the editor of uh, Sozialistische Monatshefte, the, the Socialist Monthly. Um, uh, uh, Bloch really um, wanted Eisner to to come to work for um, for that journal, a very influential journal. But it um, it also represented um, the the reformist view to a point that Eisner never accepted. So he would um, typically write uh, literary criticism, um, drama reviews for Sozialistische uh, Monatshefte, but he tried to um, keep free hand. And um, the I think that the um, the party in Nuremberg saw that they had uh, a magnificent opportunity to bring on one of the most accomplished journalists um, uh, in the movement. Um, Eisner is typically uh, ranked uh, one of the the top two journalists, together with Franz Mehring, in the in the Social Democratic Party. Um, so uh, for him, it was um, it was a uh, a difficult transition in some respects, in that he um, he was a metropolitan creature. He loved Berlin, um, but he had had uh, he had had pleasant stints in um, in Frankfurt and Marburg. So uh, this was a chance to uh, reestablish his um, his credentials uh, in a in a different part of the country in Bavaria, which was of course um, in in many respects antagonistic to Prussia. Um, and uh, Eisner found that um, uh, quite congenial at that point in his career. It's interesting how with his move to Bavaria, he also seems to focus more upon you know, the, the change that he can, that he can uh, affect there. He, he, you described he never loses sight of, 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 of national issues and, 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 and national and, of course, international events. But he does become much more invested in what's happening in that kingdom, and uh, and and in this, I, I found it is is uh, you know is important in terms of what you describe later on in nineteen eighteen nineteen nineteen. Of course, mm-hmm. there's no question that he believed uh, Bavaria was less repressive um, uh, than Prussia. Uh, he believed that there were. Um, there were opportunities there to uh, to make inroads um, among um, the the rural class um, to uh, really to promote the socialist uh, the social democratic party um, in in places it it really had never had success and he did that with great efficiency. Um, he also uh, was interested in in turning his newspaper in Nuremberg into an instrument of political education on a mass scale. One of the debates in the in the Social Democratic Party at the time was that of um, the the party school in Berlin, which Eisner believed was elitist. This was a this was an institution that was backed by the the party radicals, um, um, most prominently Rosa Luxemburg, Franz Mehring. Um, they uh, hear young workers who had um, had had shown a, a gift for academics were uh, brought to Berlin for um, half a year. They took seminars um, in political economy, um, in in topics such as Marxist theory, um, uh, imperialism, um, the nature of um, warfare in capitalist states, and. Uh, for this six-month period, they were um, they were uh, indoctrinated and trained to uh, to to spread that uh, indoctrination. Um, Eisner believed that it, it was really the mission of the Social Democratic Party to reach a broad mass, and so he was determined to to make his newspaper um, uh, an instrument of that. He did it by establishing um, supplements. Uh, an educational supplement where all manner of um, of general knowledge was presented, um, logic, rhetoric, um, botany, um, every topic was was fair game to him. Um, he convinced the the local party structure to hire a professional pedagogue, 
um, who would hold um, lectures for workers on Sunday afternoons, who would go out into the community and uh, speak on uh, a variety of topics. Eisner was also extremely interested, really the, the leading figure uh, in the party on international politics. Um, the, the German Social Democratic Party had, um, in, in many respects, turned inward, and they, they were looking at what they could accomplish in Germany. Eisner was, um, was keenly aware of uh, the threat to international peace. Um, he saw the, in the first Moroccan crisis of 1905 um, uh, really a, a prelude to uh, an international conflagration, which occurred in less than a decade. And, um, and then once again, um, in, in 1911, the second Moroccan crisis, he was, uh, he was uh, utterly convinced that um, there would be world war. Uh, for this, he was mocked, um, scoffed at by his, uh, his comrades, and precisely those who, in August 1914, um, rushed to the colors uh, and um, basically destroyed the uh, Second International. So when the war did come in August of 1914, how did Eisner himself respond to it? And how did that then uh, shape or reshape his uh, career trajectory? He was um, at that time associate editor to uh, Adolf Müller at, uh, at the Münchner Post, the, the, um, the organ in, um, in the various capital. Um, this had come about, I should backtrack a little here. Uh, this had come about um, because of the, the dissolution of uh, his marriage in Nuremberg. Um, he, um, he became uh, attracted to a, a woman who was a, had a party pedigree. Um, her father had, uh, had been the, um, one of the, the linchpins in the, um, what was called the red field post, um, uh, smuggling um, banned socialist papers back into Germany uh, during the period uh, of the anti-socialist laws under Bismarck. And uh, his daughter, Elsa Belli, um, became Eisner's lover uh, in Nuremberg. Um, this was considered a party scandal. Um, Eisner was wed with five children. Um, that marriage uh, had for some time um, grown stale, and Eisner sought to be free of it. Um, in um, he continued to support his family, but uh, he um, he realized that the the negative publicity from that for the paper um, necessitated a, a change of venue, and he uh, he moved to Munich, um, and there uh, affiliated with the Munchen Post. Uh, under Adolf Müller, he was influenced um, to believe that um, the the Tsar had plans to um, to expand into Europe, and b- believed in 1914 that um, that Russia was the aggressor state, and that um, the uh, the threads to um, to the Balkan drama were being pulled in Moscow. Um, he initially supported uh, Germany's entry into the First World War, but then after reading the the various uh, white papers that came out by the British government, the Belgian government, the French government, um, he realized that that he had been duped and uh, immediately began to oppose the war. Um, For that reason, he was deprived of his political editorship um, at Munich, but was allowed to continue as uh, uh, a drama critic. Um, he um, he became increasingly disaffected, and uh, eventually um, went over to the um, to the uh, the opponents of the of the war. Um, at the time, uh, the Social Democratic Party as a whole backed uh, the Burgfrieden, the the, the civil peace that, uh, that uh, Kaiser Wilhelm had called for. Um, Eisner uh, opposed it and joined um, those who did oppose it, including um, many of his, uh, of his former 
adversaries um, and uh, eventually becomes the, the leader in Munich of the independent socialist, uh, social democratic party, um, the splinter party that broke away from um, what became known as the majority socialists, um, uh, the MSPD, the majority social democratic party, and uh, becomes uh, the, the unofficial head in the South of, um, of that splinter group. Your chapters upon this, on this period of Eisner's life are really fascinating. I was especially uh, intrigued by how you described that even though he has this position as a drama critic, with that, that, that's basically what is politically possible for him, he is still infusing his writings with his criticism of the war and of the politics behind it. Exactly. Uh, he, um, he became the leader and spokesperson for a group of, uh, of radicalized veterans, um, men who, uh, had, had fought, um, in, in many cases been wounded, were sent to, uh, to Munich to convalesce. And they, um, they became um, vehement opponents of the war, and they turned to Eisner as you know, as their their leader, as their their spokesperson. And he, at their um, you know, at their request, he organized uh, weekly discussion meetings. And uh, these this group of uh, at at the beginning maybe two dozen individuals. Uh, began to grow, and as um, as it became apparent that Germany would not win the war, uh, they uh, they attracted um, more and more um, disenchanted, um, radicalized uh, students, soldiers, workers um, to the cause, and this really became his his cadre um, to to launch the revolution uh, in in 1918. But because of his political activity, um, he uh, he was imprisoned once again, um, this time for treason, uh, when in uh, January 1918, he organized a strike of munition workers, munitions workers, uh, in the attempt to force an armistice. Um, the, there had been uh, there had been strikes in Vienna. Um, Eisner sought to expand that to Germany as a whole. And uh, it was uh, quite successful in Munich. Um, many of the uh, the factories, um, many of the workers walked off the line. And uh, Eisner and his accomplices for that, including Ernst Toller and uh, Sarah Sonja Lersch, um, were arrested. They were charged with treason. They were not brought to trial, but they were held indefinitely. Um, uh, at Stadelheim prison in, in Eisner's case. And uh, he, at that point, I, I think, um, despaired that he would ever again see the light of day. Um, as, uh, as the political situation uh, worsened for Germany, as the military situation worsened, um, he, he began to believe that he might be released at some point. Uh, and indeed, um, there was a, a release of political prisoners um, in uh, October uh, of 1918. And when Eisner came out of prison, um, his intent was to um, foment a revolution in, um, in Munich that would depose the uh, Wittelsbach dynasty uh, in accord with what Woodrow Wilson had demanded uh, in, in his 14 points that um, the United States would not negotiate with monarchs. There had to be uh, a democratically elected government for uh, a peace to be made. And uh, this, is, uh, this is at the point where, um, this is at the, uh, the end of the 100 days, where Ludendorff um, realizes that the situation is, is hopeless, that uh, the, the BEF and the French are, are likely to storm into Germany. And uh, peace initiatives uh, have really gained traction. Um, Eisner's um, coterie, his, his cadre, um, worked tirelessly at that point um, to um, 
to bring about that revolution. Um, Eisner was actually released from prison on a technicality. Um, he was, uh, there was a special election in Munich, Georg von Vollmar, the longtime uh, Social Democratic um, uh, member of the Reichstag, uh, resigned his position. Um, uh, um, Erhard Auer, who was one of um, Eisner's uh, former comrades and uh, had become a fair adversary with the party split, um, was one of the nominees. Eisner's um, contingent nominated him as the independent social democratic candidate for uh, for that seat um, because of a loophole in the, the law. Uh, if someone were um, nominated for a um, uh, a seat in the in the Reichstag and they had not been convicted of a crime, they had to be released to campaign. Thus he was released and he had no real intention of, of campaigning for that seat, but rather for a revolution. Um, because he was neo-Kantian in his belief and um, non-violent, um, he, um, he had to convince his followers that they might well become martyrs, but by doing so, they would convince the general populace of the, the justice of their cause. Um, so when um, in, in November 1918, uh, push came to shove, um, Eisner's, uh, Eisner's contingent really overwhelmed the majority social democratic contingent and uh, they were able to um, consolidate huge numbers of followers in a very brief time and then uh, on um, 6th of November, 7th of November um, successfully persuade by demonstration the uh, Bavarian king to uh, order his car and depart the capital. Um, there was not one drop of blood shed in that uh, that revolution, which uh, Eisner took great pride in. And in fact, he um, he was never certain of its success. So um, the proclamation of the republic itself was um, uh, almost extemporaneous. He knew what he wanted, but he didn't realize it would come so quickly. This was an incredibly heady period for Eisner, and yet it's one that ends uh, just a few months later. Could, I was wondering if you could explain what his time as, as premier was like and what were some of the challenges that he faced and what it was that would ultimately led him to uh, accept uh, that he needed to resign. Yeah, the, um, at the end of the war, um, German troops were um, being sent home. Um, these were men who uh, had survived trench warfare in, in many cases. Um, they were returning home without work. Um, the British blockade had been quite successful. Uh, people in Germany were in dire straits, the civilian populace. Um, so Eisner was, uh, was worried initially about um, the possibility of, uh, of creating uh, a socialist republic. Um, there was not really uh, much industry left to nationalize. So what he concentrated on was democratic reform. Um, he, uh, he insisted on uh, universal suffrage, um, you know, for, uh, for men, for women, um, you know, workers who had been sent to Bavaria um, from North Germany were, um, were allowed to vote in the Bavarian elections. Um, he uh, he had uh, he had consolidated uh, in large part a, a system of councils of Soviets and believed that um, that there had to be uh, more direct democracy than had uh, there had been um, with Reichstag elections, for example. Um, he wanted um, he wanted there to be a parliament, but he also wanted to have um, councils serve. Uh, in the stead of the, uh, the the former upper house, the House of Lords, so to speak, um, and uh, and he believed that uh, every um, every trade, every profession should have its own council. Um, it, he really did want to um, to expand uh, 
direct democracy above all other things. Um, he wanted separation of church and state. Um, he wanted um, he wanted uh, to support um, education um, and all of these reforms. He was able to implement. Um, he did not attempt to nationalize industry because there was not that much industry left to nationalize. Um, given Germany's um, standing, he did plan to, um, you know, to, uh, to extend socialism to agriculture, um, to have a more equitable distribution of land. Um, and he had the support of the, um, you know, the Bavarian um, uh, Peasants League, um, Together with the, he realized that for his revolution to succeed and for the republic to be consolidated, he would have to um, cooperate, collaborate with the majority socialist uh, party, the majority social democrats, um, who had been his uh, had been his adversaries recently. And remarkably, he accorded them um, more ministries than he did to his own party. Um, at the, at the same time, if you look at what was happening in Berlin, there's just uh, there's this horrible fratricide where um, the majority social democratic leadership uh, makes their alliance with the former um, general staff. And uh, they turn then on the, the left wing of the party, the Spartacists under uh, Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht, um, and, uh, and then, of course, in, in, in January... Um, you know, Luxembourg and Liebknecht are, are, are ferreted out and murdered. Um, Eisner was trying at all costs to avoid civil war in Bavaria, um, as was playing out in Berlin. Um, he did that with success. Uh, there was no, um, there was no massive fighting in, in Munich. You describe in the book, the challenge, it wasn't just a challenge coming from the uh, right and the Social Democrats, but uh, as a bit of context, you had the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. You have the fear of Bolshevism, and Eisner didn't really embrace that. So and that's what I was fascinated by in your description, which is that he is put, he's pushing for these reforms that he sincerely believes in, and yet at the same time, the he has these opponents who – want to use those reforms to push through a revolution that is very different from the one that he intends. Yes, exactly. Um, the, uh, there was in, um, in Munich around, uh, for example, Erich Musam, there was a, an anarchist movement that went over to, um, to the, the KPD, the communist party, uh, after its founding, um, late December, early January, um, uh, 1918, 1919. And, um, so Eisner who believed in, um, in, in freedom of the press, who, you know, who eschewed a, an official state newspaper, um, wanted to allow the freest possible reign to his, his critics, regardless of which direction. And, uh, and in, in many cases, Eric um, Musam said uh, that um, this was his undoing. He dug his own grave by not being um, repressive enough. But this was totally against his nature. Uh, he he would have preferred to be martyred than to um, than to uh, to silence critics. Um, so he uh, he really did, I think, everything within his power to maintain calm in the South. Uh, while attempting to um, reforge international relations, particularly with the French, I mean, he um, he when he went to the International Socialist Conference in Bern, um, uh, in February 1919, um, he uh, he reached out to the French. He um, he showed his great knowledge of the uh, the destruction that had occurred in in France. Um, he he strove for a uh, a reunification of, of of socialists in France and Germany. He really wanted to avoid a, a centrist German government dominated by Prussia, as it had been, and uh, for that reason um, opposed uh, Hugo Price's uh, a draft of the of the, the Weimar Constitution. Um, and when he um, when he realized that 
um, that in the the elections that he had himself called and uh, supported, that his independent social democratic party um, finished far behind the majority social democratic party of his um, his adversary Erhard Auer, that uh, it would it would be necessary for the government to resign and for a new government to be constituted. Um, he used those last couple of weeks in office as a, as a, a forum um, for, his, for his policies, for his vision. Um, he preached it uh, you know, at Bern, at the, um, you know, at the Conference of the International, and um, in, in different venues. University at Basel asked him to, to speak. Um, he held an address there that is, um, is, is remarkable and memorable uh, and has appeared in a number of memoirs. Um, and then uh, returning to Munich, um, drafted his, uh, he had drafted his constitution at the same time he was writing his resignation and uh, was prepared to present the constitution to the new constituent assembly to consider. Um, and at, at this point, the um, the radical right, the tool society, the um, the harbingers of uh, of the Nazi Party, were consolidating, and uh, one of their um, one of their devotees, uh, a man who had actually been um, deprived uh, admission to the tool society because of his um, his partially Jewish heritage, his mother was Jewish, um, uh, Anton Arco. Uh, Al Falay, uh, young Catholic aristocrat, determined that um, uh, Eisner had to be assassinated, and um, so Eisner was warned repeatedly by um, by different friends and also by some adversaries that he faced uh, assassination. He never flinched from that. Um, his remark was, "They can only shoot me once." Um, and uh, that did indeed happen um, when he uh, was actually en route to the um, the Landtag to tender his government's resignation. He's his assassination is in some ways a harbinger for what Germany was going to experience over the next two decades. You describe in your final chapter when you talk about the legacy, the the fate of so many people who followed him. His assassination. Uh, that in some ways presages Matthias's, Ebers, and of course, you know, later on, the the you know the the visceral reaction of the of the radical right, as you've already alluded to, is a portent for the rise of the Nazis in in, in the 1930s. And yet, you, when he is finishing that period of of, of his premiership, you uh, write that he he seems to be very content with what he has left behind. What, what, what was his legacy for uh, Bavaria and, and, and for the wider world? Oh, what he thought his legacy was, was uh, democratic reform of the monarchical structure, that he was ushering in um, really modernity, um, the, that the people themselves would, um, would be sovereign and have their choice. Um, the, uh, this of course, um, did not come to pass. It was not meant to be, um, you know, uh, I speak some about the, um, the failed revolution and the stillborn democracy of, uh, Weimar Republic. Um, but, uh, the Eisner believed that, um, there would be elections and eventually, uh, that, um, the, the people themselves would realize how they had been exploited by their past rulers. They would be um, they would be more accepting of democracy, and eventually it would triumph. Uh, if you if you want to look at a single figure who illustrates this, I would say look at Thomas Mann. Um, Thomas Mann was initially extremely critical of Eisner's government. Um, he uh, he had been a monarchist. He had supported the First World War. Um, and then, uh, didn't, then during that period of, of Weimar Germany, when he saw um, the Nazi rise to power, he became a reluctant Democrat and, of course, had to flee um, to the U.S. 
uh, spend his time here in exile, but then became a eventually a, a committed Democrat. Um, I think that this was the mentality that Eisner had sought to foster in the populace as a whole. Um, he believed in the triumph of socialism. Um, he believed in social justice, um, which he equated with socialism. Um, and this was, of course, um, a bone of contention with the um, the historical materialists, with the economic determinists. Um, and his his legacy, I think, is that um, his democratic republic was the last best chance to preclude Adolf Hitler and the Nazi rise to power. And the failure of Eisner's government and Hitler's rise to power constitute, I think, two of the great tragedies of the 20th century. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, um, the the next project is, um, uh, it is a, an article on uh, Brecht's prologue to the Caucasian chalk circle and the political purpose of that prologue. Sounds like a very interesting article. Well, uh, thank you very much for taking some time away from your work to speak with us, Al. I hope you have a wonderful day. Mark, thank you so much. And uh, thanks to um, the New Books Network. It was our pleasure. <laughs>